Hello. Hello. Welcome to Infinite Cast Part Eight. 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 Uh, what a what a momentous part we have we have an, upon us. What a ride! I've been hyping this up for several readings because um, I'm very excited to finally meet one of the main characters of the book. Yes. Who after this will after eight sessions we finally get to meet him. Um, but I kept miscalculating how much we would read because of footnotes, et cetera. <laughs> but we can finally meet him. Uh, Who is he? He is Don Don Gately. Don Gately. I've been I've been hearing so much about this fellow. I'm I excited. think you're really gonna like him. He's well, my favorite. I'm locked and loaded. I got my honey toast uh, ready to go. All right. Which I will be uh, munching on uh, <laughs> on on mic as a kind of ASMR as we go. So uh, let's get into it. All right. <laughs> let's do it. But before we meet Don Gately, we're going to do one other thing. 18 in May, Mario Incandenza's designated function around Enfield Tennis Academy is filmic. Sometimes during AM drills or PM matches, he'll be assigned by Coach Stitt et al. to set up an old camcorder or whatever video stuffs to hand on a tripod and record a certain area of court, videotaping different kids' strokes footwork, certain ticks and hitches in serves or running volleys, so the staff can show the tapes to the kids instructionally, letting the kids see on the screen exactly what a coach or pro rector is talking about. The reason being, it's a lot easier to fix something if you can see it. We move to autumn of the year of dairy products from the American heartland. <laughs> so this is a few years, I can't remember how many, but a few years before uh, Depend Adult Undergarment. Drug addicts driven to crime to finance their drug addiction are not often inclined toward violent crime. Violence requires all different kinds of energy, and most drug addicts like to expend their energy not on their professional crime, but on what their professional crime lets them afford. Drug addicts are often burglars, therefore. One reason why the home of someone whose home has been burglarized feels violated and unclean is that there have probably been drug addicts in there. Don Gately was a 27-year-old oral narcotics addict favoring Demerol and Talwin. Uh, Talwin will take it to a footnote, footnote number 12. Um, Meperidine hydrochloride and pentazosine hydrochloride schedule C2 and C4 narcotic analgesics, respectively, both from the good folks over at Sanofi Winthrop Farm Labs Incorporated. In a sub-footnote for C4, uh, following the Continental Controlled Substance Act uh, of YTMP ONANDEA's hierarchy of analgesics slash antipyretics slash anxiolytics establishes drug classes of Category 2 through Category 6, with C2s, e.g. Dilated, Demerol, being judged the heaviest with regarding to dependence and possible abuse, down to C6s that are about as potent as a kiss on the forehead from mom. <laughs> back to the narrative uh, so favoring Demerol and Talwin and Don Gately is a more or less professional burglar and he was himself unclean and violated but he was a gifted burglar when he burgled though the size of a young dinosaur with a massive and almost perfectly square head he used to amuse his friends when drunk by letting them open and close elevator doors on he was at his professional zenith smart, sneaky, quiet, quick possessed of good taste and reliable transportation, uh, with a kind of ferocious jolliness in his attitude toward his livelihood. 
As an active drug addict, Gately was distinguished by his ferocious and jolly elan. He kept his big square chin up and his smile wide, but he bowed neither toward nor away from any man. He took zero in the way of shit and was a cheery but implacable exponent of the don't-get-mad-get-even school. Like, for instance, once, after he'd done a really unpleasant three-month bit in Revere Holding on nothing more than a remorseless North Shore assistant district attorney's circumstantial suspicion, finally getting out after 92 days when his PD got the charges dismissed on a right-to-speedy brief, Gately and a trusted associate, we'll go back to the footnote, footnote number 13, Though masked in the evidentiary photo and never once given up or named by Gately to anyone, this can be presumed to have been one Trent Quo Vadis Kite, Gately's old and once gifted friend from his Beverly, Massachusetts childhood. What does Quo Vadis mean? Uh, okay, we, don't, we can, maybe I'll look it up after. Uh, back to the narrative. Gately and a trusted associate paid a semi-professional visit to the private home of this assistant DA whose zeal and warrant had cost Gately a nasty impromptu detox on the floor of his little holding cell. Also a believer in the revenge's tastier chilled dictum, Gately had waited patiently until the Eye on People section of the Globe mentioned the ADA and his wife's presence at some celebrity charity sailing thing out in Marblehead. Gately and the associate went that night to the ADA's private home in the upscale Wonderland Valley of Revere, section of Revere, killed the power to the home with a straight shunt in the meter's inflow, then clipped just the ground wire on the home's pricey HBT alarm so that the alarm would sound after 10 or so minutes and create the impression that the perps had somehow bungled the alarm and been scared off in the middle of the act. Later that night, when Revere's and Marblehead's finest summoned them home, the ADA and his wife found themselves minus a coin collection and two antique shotguns and nothing more. Quite a few other valuables were stacked on the floor of the living room off the foyer like the perps hadn't had time to get them out of the house. Everything else in the burglarized home looked undisturbed. The ADA was a jaded pro. He walked around touching the brim of his hat. Let's go to a footnote number 14. <laughs> this ADA's little personal trademark was that he always wore an anachronistic but quality Stetson brand businessman's hat <laughs> with a decorative feather in the band and frequently touched or played with the hat in tense situations. All right, so he was touching his hat uh, and he reconstructed probable events. The perps looked like they'd bungled disabling the alarm all the way and had got scared off by the thing's siren when the alarm's pricey HBT alternate ground kicked in at 300 volts. The ADA soothed his wife's sense of violation and uncleanliness. He calmly insisted on sleeping there in their home that very night. No hotel. It was, like, crucial to get right back on the emotional horse in cases like this, he insisted. <laughs> And then the next day, the ADA worked out the insurance and reported the shotguns to a buddy at ATF, and his wife calmed down, and life went on. On ATF, we will go to footnote number you know, 15. First, like, 30 pages, not many footnotes, but once he breaks the seal, they He's really in. come hard and fast. I, sh I should say these are endnotes. They're not footnotes. Endnotes, yes. I, wish, I fucking wish they were footnotes. Uh, footnote Endnote 15 will be accurate. Uh, the Bureau of Alcohol slash Tobacco slash Firearms at that time under the temporary aegis of the United States Office of Unspecified Services. <laughs> we'll hear more about the... Uh, the Office of Special Planning. Yeah, the Office of Special Plans. 
Uh, all right. About a month later, an envelope arrived in the ADA's home's exquisite wrought iron mailbox. In the envelope were a standard American Dental Association glossy brochure on the importance of daily oral hygiene, available at like any dentist's office anywhere, and two high-pixel Polaroid snapshots, one of Big Don Gately and one of his associate, each in a Halloween mask denoting a clown's great good professional cheer, each with his pants down and bent over, and each with the enhanced focus handle of one of the couple's toothbrushes protruding from his bottom. He's the dang joker. He's the dang joker. Uh, Don Gately had sense enough never to work the North Shore again after that, but he ended up in hideous trouble anyway, ADA-wise. It was either bad luck or kismet or so forth. It was because of a cold, a plain old human rhinovirus. And not even Don Gately's cold is what made him finally stop and question his kismet. The thing started out looking like tit on a tray, burglary-wise. A beautiful neo-Georgian home in a wildly upscale part of Brookline was nicely set back from an unlit pseudo-rural road, had a chintzy Sentry-Co alarm system that fed, idiotically enough, on a whole separate 330-volt AC 90 hertz cable with its own meter, didn't seem to be on anything like a regular PM patrol route, and had at its rear flimsily tasteful French doors surrounded by dense and thorn-free deciduous shrubbery and blocked off from the garage's halogen floods by a private EWD-issue upscale dumpster. It was, in short, a real cocktease of a home, burglary-wise, <laughs> for a drug addict. And Don Gately straight-shunted the alarm's meter, and with an associate, we go to foot, uh, end note 16, Extremely unpleasant Quebecois insurgents and cartridge-related subsequent developments make it clear that this was, again, Trent Quo Vadis Kite. I'm not sure if we ever meet Trent Kite again. But we meet the Quebecois insurgents. We, we sure do. Oh, boy. Um, with an associate, broke and entered and crept around on huge cat feet. Except, unfortunately, the owner of the house turned out to still be home, even though both of his cars and the rest of his family were gone. The little guy was asleep, sick in bed upstairs in acetate pajamas with a hot water bottle on his chest and half a glass of OJ and a bottle of NyQuil. We go to end note number 17. The codeine-less kind, though. Almost the first physical datum Gately took in in the nasty flashbulb flash shock of the occupied bedroom's light coming on to give you an idea of an oral narcotics man's depth of psychic investment. <laughs> <laughs> Love to immediately clock whether there's codeine in the NyQuil. A bottle of NyQuil and a foreign book and copies of International Affairs and Interdependent Affairs <laughs> and a, a pair of thick specs and an industrial-sized box of Kleenex on the bedside table and an empty vaporizer barely humming at the foot of the bed. And the guy was, to say the least, nonplussed to wake up and see high-filter flashlights crisscrossing over the unlit bedroom walls and bureau and teak chiffonier as Gately and Associates scanned for a wall safe, which surprisingly like 90% of people with wall safes conceal in their master bedroom behind some sort of land or seascape painting. <laughs> people turned out so identical in certain root domestic particulars, it made Gately feel strange sometimes, like he was in possession of certain overlarge private facts to which no man should be entitled. Gately had a way stickier conscience about the possession of some of these large particular facts than he did about making off with other people's personal merchandise. 
But then, all of a sudden, in mid-silent search for a safe, here's this upscale homeowner turning out to be home with a nasty head cold while his family's out on a two-car foliage tour in what's left of the Berkshires, (laughs) writhing groggily and nyquilized around on the bed and making honking adenoidal sounds and asking what in bloody hell is the meaning of this, except he's saying it in Quebecois French which means to these thuggish U.S. drug addicts in Halloween clowns' masks, exactly nothing. He's sitting up in bed, a little and older type homeowner, with a football-shaped head and gray Van Dyke, and eyes you can tell are used to corrective lenses as he switches on the bright bedside lamp. Gately could have easily screwed out of there and never looked back. But here indeed in the lamplight is a seascape over next to the chiffonier, and the associate has a quick peek and reports that the safe behind it is to laugh at. It can be open with harsh language, almost. And oral (laughs) narcotics addicts tend to operate on an extremely rigid physical schedule of need and satisfaction. And Gately is, at this moment, firmly in the need part of the schedule. And so D.W. Gately disastrously decides to go ahead and allow a nonviolent burglary to become, in effect, a robbery which the operative legal difference involves either violence or the coercive threat of same. And Gately draws himself up to his full menacing height and shines his flashlight in the little homeowner's roomy eyes and addresses him the way menacing criminals speak in popular entertainment. D's for THs, various uh, apocopies, (laughs) and so on. We'll have to look up that one after. We'll have to do a vocab section. (laughs) Apocopies. Apocopies. Uh, and takes hold of the guy's ear and conducts him down to a kitchen chair. Ah, uh, damn dude, you just robbed. Mm, he, he's got to rob. And binds his arms and legs to the chair oh, with, no. with electrical cords neatly clipped. The charge is increasing by the minute. <laughs> the, 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 the ADA is going to have a field day with this. Uh, electrical cords neatly clipped from refrigerator and can opener and M Cafe brand automatic cafe au lait maker binds him just short of gangrenously tight because he's hoping the Berkshire foliage is prime and the guy's going to be soloing in this chair for a good stretch of time and Gately starts looking through the kitchen drawers for the silverware. Not the good for silver com- not the good silver for company silverware. That was in a calfskin case underneath some neatly folded old spare Christmas wrapping in a stunning hardwood with ivory inlay chest of drawers in the living room where over 90% of upscale people's good silver is always hidden and has already been promoted and is piled just off the foyer. Uh, piled takes us to endnote number 18. On top of the seascape safe's more negotiable contents, themselves on top of an unplugged and head-parked and absolutely top-hole, genuine interlaced state-of-the-art TP-slash-viewer ensemble in a multi-shelled, hardwood rollable-like entertainment system console thing with a cartridge dock and double-head drive in a compartment underneath with doors with classy little brass maple leaf knob things and several shelves crammed tight with upscale, arty-looking film cartridges, which latter Don Gately's colleague just about drooled all over the parquet flooring at the potential discriminating type fence value of, potentially, if they were rare or celluloid transferred or not available on the interlaced dissemination grid. (laughs) You know what that is? Hmm. It's just fencing DVDs, like in The Sopranos. (laughs) This this book was written kind of in that same time period where like a a DVD was like... Yeah, it was fancy. It was fancy. He's he's drooling over the street value of a Criterion Collection 4K restoration. (laughs) 
What's the um uh what when the box is fancy? Uh the, the steel book. Steel book, yeah. Yeah, he's got some he's got some fancy steel books. He's got some steel books and he's he can't that wait entertainment to entertainment center sounds sick. Yeah, it sounds dope. Hard to, um, hard to move though. They're gonna have to hustle to get it in the van. Yeah, that might be tr- troublesome for them. Uh all right, so yeah, piled off the foyer. The silver, that is. Um, he's not looking for that silver. He's looking for just the regular old everyday flatware silverware because the vast bulk of homeowners keep their dish towels two drawers below their everyday silverware drawer. And God's made no better call for help stifling gag in the world than a good old oily smelling fake linen dish towel. And the bound guy in the cords on the chair suddenly snaps to the implications of what Gately's looking for and is struggling and saying, do not gag me. I have a terrible cold. My nose, she is a brick of the snot. I have not the power to breathe through the nose. For the love of God, please do not gag my mouth. And as a gesture of goodwill, the homeowner tells Gately, who is rummaging, the combination of the bedroom's seascape safe, except in French numbers, which together with the honking adenoidal inflection the guy's grip gives his speech, doesn't even sound like human speech to Gately. And but also the guy tells Gately there are some antique pre-British takeover Quebecois gold coins in a calfskin purse taped to the back of an undistinguished impressionist landscape in the living room. But everything the Canadian homeowner says means no more to poor old Don Gately, whistling a jolly tune and trying to look menacing in his clown's mask, than the cries of, say, North Shore gulls or inland grackles. (laughs) And sure enough, the towels are two drawers under the spoons. And here comes Gately across the kitchen, looking like a sort of bozo from hell. And the Quebecer guy's mouth goes oval with horror. And into that mouth goes a balled up, faintly greasy smelling kitchen towel. And across the guy's cheeks and over the dome of protruding linen goes some fine quality fibrous strapping tape from the drawer under the decommissioned phone. Why does everybody keep the serious mailing supplies in the drawer nearest the kitchen phone? (laughs) And Don Gately and associate finish their swift and with the best of intentions, nonviolent business of stripping the Brookline home as bare as a post-feral hamster meadow. We'll talk about the feral hamsters in a little bit. Okay. Uh, That's part of it. And they relock the front door and hit the unlit road in Gately's reliable and double muffled 4x4. And the bound, wheezing, acetate-clad Canadian, the right-hand man, to probably the most infamous anti-ONAN organizer north of the Great Concavity. We'll talk about the (laughs) The Great Great Concavity. The lieutenant and troubleshooting trusted advisor who selflessly volunteered to move with his family to the savagely American area of Metro Boston (laughs) to act as liaison between and general leash holder for the half dozen or so malevolent and mutually antagonistic groups of Quebecer separatists and Albertan (laughs) ultra-rightists united only in their fanatical conviction that the USA's experialistic gift or return of the so-calledly reconfigured Great Convexity to its northern neighbor and ONAN ally constituted an intolerable blow to Canadian sovereignty, honor, and hygiene. Oh, yeah. This homeowner, unquestionably a VIP, although admittedly rather a covert VIP, or probably more accurately, a PIT in French, I guess it would be PIT, go to a footnote, number 19, une personne de l'importance terrible, presumably. <laughs> a person of terrible importance. <laughs> uh, 
uh, uh, in French, this meek looking Canadian terrorism coordinator <laughs> bound, <laughs> bound to his chair, thoroughly gagged, sitting there alone under cold fluorescent kitchen lights. We go to end note number 20. Uh, fluorescence has been banned in Quebec, as have computerized telephone solicitations. The little ad cards that fall out of magazines and have to be looked at to be picked up and thrown in the trash. And the mention of any religious holiday whatsoever to sell any sort of product or service is just one reason why his volunteering to come live down here was selfless. Mm. I, I, it is funny, the idea of banning the little cards. The little cards. Wow, what a, what a old thought i have not experienced one of those cards in a that, decade that's 90s energy um yes so he's sitting there under the cold fluorescent kitchen lights the rhino virally afflicted man gagged with skill and quality materials that guy having worked so hard to partially clear one clotted nasal passage that he tore intercostal ligaments in his ribs soon found even that pinprick of air blocked off by mucuses implacable lava-like flow once again and so has to tear more ligaments trying to breach the other nostril and so on and after an hour of struggle and flames in his chest and blood on his lips and the white kitchen towel from trying frantically to tongue the towel out past the tape, which is quality tape, and after hopes skyrocketing when the doorbell rings and then hopes blackly dashed when the person at the door, a young woman with a clipboard and chewing gum who's offering promotional coupons good for happy holidays discounts on memberships of six months <laughs> or more at a string of Boston non-UV tanning salons, shrugs in her parka and makes a mark on the clipboard and blithely retreats down the long driveway to the pseudo-rural road. An hour of this or more, finally, the Quebecois pe after unspeakable agony, slow suffocation, mucoidal or no, being no day at the Montreal Tulip Fest, at the height of which agony, hearing his head's pulse as receding thunder and watching his vision's circle shrink as a red aperture around his sight rotates steadily in from the edges, at the height of which he could think only, despite the pain and panic, of what a truly dumb and silly way this was, after all this time, to die, a thought which the towel and tape denied expression via the rueful grin which, which, with which the best men meet, meet the dumbest ends. This... <laughs> This Guillaume Duplessis passed bluely from this life and sat there in the kitchen chair, 250 clicks due east of some really spectacular autumn foliage, for almost two nights and days, his posture getting more and more military as rigor mortis set in, with his bare feet looking like purple loaves of bread from the lividity. And when Brookline's finest were finally summoned and got him unbound from the coldly lit chair, they had to carry him out as if he were still seated. So military, militarily come il faut had his limbs and spine hardened. And poor old Don Gately, whose professional habit of killing power with straight shunts to a meter's inflow was pretty much a signature M.O., and who had, of course, a special place in the heart of a remorseless, revere ADA with judicial clout throughout Boston's three counties and beyond, uh, and of course, particularly remorseless ADA as of late, whose wife now needed Valium even just to floss, and was patiently awaiting his chance, the ADA was, coldly biding his time, being a patient, get-even, and cold-dish man, just like Don Gately, who was, through no will, to energy-consuming violence on his part, in the sort of hell of a deep-shit mess 
that can turn a man's life right around. Damn. Is that is it that that's it for that section? How are we on time? Uh, that's that's twenty twenty minutes and some. I could we can do a little more. Do you you have one more section right here? Yeah, let's do one more section. Okay, great. Um, if the if the end notes screw us, then whatever. Uh, this is just a, a single uh, standalone paragraph. Year of the Depend Adult Undergarment, Interlace Tell Entertainment. 932-1864-RISC Power TPs with or without console. Pink squared. Uh, Post-Prime Star DSS dissemination. Menus and icons. Pixel-free internet facts. Try and quad modems with adjustable baud. Dissemination grids. Screens so high def you might as well be there. Cost-effective videophonic conferencing. Internal Frox CD-ROM. Electronic couture, <laughs> all in one consoles. You shit you nanoprocessors. Laser cro- chromatography, virtual capable media cards, fiber optic pulse, digital encoding, killer apps, carpal neuralgia, phosphenic migraine, gluteal hyperadiposity, lumbar stress A. Oh, okay, <laughs> David Foster Wallace, we get it. You don't like technology. Fuck off. I don't have a television. Uh, we'll talk about it. 3rd November, year of the Depend Adult Undergarment. Okay. We're back in the this, yes. the, this November section is like kind of the main time. Okay, great. Room 204, sub-dormitory B. Jim Trolch, age 17, hometown Narberth, Pennsylvania, current Enfield Tennis Academy rank in boys 18s, number eight, which puts him at number two singles on the 18s B team, has been taken ill again. It came on as he was suiting up warmly for the B-Squad's 0745-hour drills. A cartridge of a round of 16 match from September's U.S. Open had been on the small room viewer with the sound all the way down as usual, and Trolched been straightening the straps on his jock, idly calling the match's action into his fist when it came on, the illness. It came out of nowhere. His breathing all of a sudden started hurting the back of his throat, then that overfull heat in various cranial, cranial metis. <laughs> then he sneezed, and the stuff he sneezed out was thick and doughy. It came on ultra fast and out of the pre-drill blue. He's back in bed now, supine, watching the match's fourth set, but not calling the action. The viewer's right under Pemulus's poster of the Paranoid King that you can't escape looking at if you want to look at the viewer. Paranoid King takes us to end note number 21. QV note. 211 sub <laughs> wait what the fuck <laughs> oh god let me let me s- investigate <laughs> is this but, a but, sub footnote but i don't know if it's it's telling me to reference it <laughs> okay it just takes us to 211 as with the neurogastric thing, only Ted Schacht and Hal know that Pemulus's deepest dread is of academic or disciplinary expulsion and ejection, of having to schlep back down Com Ave into blue-collar Alston, diploma and ticket outlets, and now in his final ETA year, the dreads increased manyfold, and is one reason Pemulus takes such elaborate precautions in all extracurriculars, making a substance customer explicitly suborn him, etc., 
and is why Hal and Shaq presented him on his last birthday with the poster over Pemulus's room's console that has a careworn, large crown king sitting on his throne, stroking his chin and brooding, with the caption, Yes, I'm paranoid, but am I paranoid enough? <laughs> Amazing. All right, so that's... So that was an endnote that referenced a later endnote. An, a later endnote, which I'm sure we'll have to do with some later stuff. Okay, but, but that's the paranoid king. That's the paranoid king. Uh, the uh, clotted Kleenex litter the floor around his bed's waste basket. The bedside table is littered with both OTC and prescription expectorants and pertussives and analgesics and vitamin C mega spansules and one bottle of Benadryl and one of Seldane. Take us to endnote 22. Seldane, trade name of Terfenidine, Marion Merrill Dow Pharmaceuticals, the tactical nuclear weapon of non-drowsy antihistamines and <laughs> mucoidal desiccators. God. Uh, only the Seldane bottle actually contains several temu- tenuate 75 milligram capsules Trolch has incrementally promoted from Pemulus's part of the room and has rather ingeniously, he thinks, stashed in bold plain sight in a bedside pill bottle where the peemster would never think to check. Is it Pemulus? Whatever. Trolt is the short, uh, the sort that can feel his own forehead and detect fever. It's definitely a rhinovirus, the sudden severe kind. He speculated on if yesterday, when Graham Raider pretended to sneeze on Jay Trolch's lunch tray at the milk dispenser at lunch, if Raider might have really sneezed and only pretended to pretend, transferring virulent rhinoviri to Trolch's delicate mucosa. He feverishly mentally calls down various cosmic retributions on Raider. Neither of Trolch's roommates is here. Ted Schacht is getting the knees first of several whirlpools for the day. Pemulus has geared up and left for 0745 drills. I finally learned how to read military time. Yeah. Uh, Trolch offered Pemulus rights to his breakfast to fill up his vaporizer for him and call the first shift nurse for yet more Seldane nuclear-grade antihistamine and a dextro, dextromethorphan nebulizer and a written excuse from AM drills. He lies there, sweating freely, watching digitally recorded professional tennis, too worried about his throat to feel loquacious enough to call the action. Seldane is not supposed to make you drowsy, but he feels weak and unpleasantly drowsy. He can barely make a fist. He's sweaty. Nausea slash vomiting, like not an impossibility by any means. He cannot believe how fast it came on, the illness. The vaporizer seethes and burps, and all four of the room's windows weep against the outside cold. There are the sad, tiny, distant champagne cork sounds of scores of balls being hit down at the east courts. Trolch drifts at a level just above sleep. Enormous asks me... (laughs) Displacement fans far up north at the wall and borders distant roar and the outdoor voices and pock of cold balls create a kind of sound carpet below the digestive sounds of the vaporizer and the squeak of Trolch's bed springs as he thrashes and twitches in a moist half-sleep. He has heavy German eyebrows and big knuckled hands. It's one of those unpleasant opioid feverish half-sleep states, more a fugue state than a sleep state, Less a floating than like being cast adrift on rough seas, tossed mightily in and out of this half-sleep where your mind's still working, and you can ask yourself whether you're asleep even as you dream. And as any, and any dreams you do have seem ragged at the edges, gnawed on, incomplete. It's literally daydreaming, sick, 
the kind of incomplete fugue you awaken from with a sort of psychic clunk, struggling up to sit upright, convinced there's someone unauthorized in the dorm room with you, falling back sick on his circle-stained pillow, staring straight up into the prolix folds of the Turkish blanketish thing Pemulus and Schacht had crazy glued to the ceiling's corners, which billows, hanging, so its folds form a terrain, like with valleys and shadows. Little sick boy. Little sick boy. Tranch, what's his first name? Uh, Jim Trolch. Jim Trolch. Okay, mm-hmm. That's Jim Trolch. And he calls the matches. He's, a co- he's, he's training really to be a commentator. Yes. Um, um, I'm just imagining being in David Foster Wallace's writing cl- class and just every paper coming back with a, a big red circled note that says, more adjectives. And adverbs. More adjectives and adverbs. See, man, my man likes to describe things. He certainly does. He gets a lot of mileage out of coming up with a chapter that's a very a fairly simple course of action and mm-hmm. then just describing the hell out of describing everything. Describing the shit out of it. And it works. It's uh, yeah, it, it I think the so far the thing that I'm enjoying most about his writing his fiction writing style. I mean, I, again, I've having read the essays like that technique is put into effect of making an argument. Mm-hmm. Um and making the argument funny. Yes. Which uh, you know, I think is important, but here the the effect is to put you in this high key neurotic anxiety mode of everybody who's like having everything completely overthought. Yes, you know, yeah. Um, my dad got his house burglar burgled by opioid fiends, and they didn't. They're presumably opioid fiends. The their only thing, they thing took was, was cash out yeah. and all the pills in his or all the any medicine in his medicine cabinet. So the presumption was that they were uh, they were drug guys. Yeah. Did he feel uh, unclean and violated? You know my dad. He's such like a happy-go-lucky guy. I was like, well, it's just a thing that happens to some people. It's it's good that he didn't get bound and gagged and died During, because his cold's mucus. Uh, that was very fairly him. horrific. Isn't that horrifying? Yeah, it's it's it is as he as he calls his own shot as as uh as gruesome as it is stupid. Yeah, I li- I like that he yeah. you know the the wry grin of of someone who's dying in a stupid way, yes. but he wasn't even afforded that pleasure because he was <laughs> bound and gagged. gagged. Uh, oh yeah, so uh, there's a lot there's a lot of little nuggets in there. Like there's I don't know if you noticed that there's something called both the great concavity and the great, great convexity. Convexity. Um, the mention of the feral hamster. Yes, he's, he likes to seed a lot of details and then like fill things in later. What's left of the Berkshires? Yes. So um, there has been some kind of, can I guess that there's been some kind of environmental disaster or, or ge- geologic disaster? You would be correct. Okay, great. That has uh, resulted in the rearranging of some, nations. Yes. Um, and that has... Did that precipitate the formation of Onan? Uh. Yes, it did. Okay, great. I'm sure we'll learn all this. This history will be backfilled in in its own elliptical ways. Yes. Oh, and in a See, speci- I, specifically, you're going to get the full details probably about halfway through the book. Is there just like a big long chapter that's like, all right, here, here you go, fuckos. Here's the history. It's a. It's specifically in like a documentary film that was made by Mario and Condenza. Okay. Um, that describe like is like a historical documentary. A, a, a modern historical documentary. Yeah. And he just describes the hell out of it. Yeah. Okay. Great. The, fer- the feral hamsters. All of that comes from 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 this area. Even also, I don't know if you clocked like there's a wall in in Massachusetts. I did not quite get that. There, uh, 
Did they do uh, Escape from New York, but it's Boston? <laughs> we got we to gotta wall off Boston until we figure out what's going the, on. The borders, the, the borders of the country are, are different now, which yeah. honestly, it's prescient. Right? Uh, the, the seating of what I'm sure I'm going to enjoy, the, uh, the Quebecois revolutionaries. I always think that uh, uh, Quebecois, violent Quebecois separatists are funny. Well, you're going to get a lot more of that. Great. And uh, yeah, the uh, big dumb addict uh, Don Gately accidentally killing a terrorist right hand man yeah. because he had a cold is just it's just so tasty. Yeah, that is tasty. I mean, yeah, accidentally uh, uh, murdering a domestic terrorist. Yeah, I want I want that poster that says, "Yeah, I'm paranoid, but am I paranoid <laughs> enough?" <laughs> the, the big king. I'm sure somebody's <laughs> made art of that. Oh uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Also prescient. Uh, we can use this to segue into the other thing that I wanted to talk about. Mm-hmm. It also, feels very prescient his um, his understanding of uh, like oral narcotics addiction and uh, mm-hmm. the prevalence. How you know, I'm sure he he saw that a little bit around him, but uh, you know, I'm sure he would not be surprised that like there would be a op- a legitimate opioid crisis just 20 years after this book was published. Seriously, it's wild. Um. But we'll we'll use that to segue into. Um, he still loves talking about drugs, uh, of all kinds, or whether our, antihistamines or yeah, or insane painkillers. Uh, it's a leading to our previous question of did did Dave Morales do drugs? And I think that he did. Is my segue into we watched a movie. Oh yes, we watched week, a movie. Um, which is twenty fifteen's the end of the tour. It's correct. Uh, starring um, Jesse Eisenberg mm-hmm. and Jason Siegel mm-hmm. uh, as what is the the journalist's name? Um, David Lipsky. Starring as David Lipsky. Two J's playing two Daves. <laughs> yes, white uh, white J's. And uh, and Siegel as David Foster Wallace. Um, it is a uh, kind of a trifle of a movie. It's, it's I don't like know. A, a, it's pitched as like kind of an intellectual buddy comedy, but it's like very twee and like indie movie. Yeah, it's it's like a road trip. It's like the most boring road, road trip, trip movie, movie I've ever seen. Yeah. Uh, and it's trying like trying to somehow like figure out the essence of David Foster Wallace. But my my interpretation of it is like pretty dark, which is that like David Lipsky absolutely used David Foster Wallace's death to further his own career. Yeah. And I think that's sus, man. Yeah. I think that's fucking sus. I think yeah, you I mean, have to he, take a good look at your life and be like, this is the most if this is the most interesting so, thing about he, me. So he wrote the Rolling Stone article in the 90s. And it never came out. It never came out. The article was never published. And then he published it as a book, like expanded and published it as a book after his death. Correct. Oh, I didn't even realize that. They never even pub- I thought it was it was like a big profile. And that wasn't stuff. implied in the movie. Uh, the movie did not even imply Oh, uh, Lipsky. Oh my god. So you, after his death you were like, "You know what? I have all these tapes. I am the, I am the Wallace Whisperer." Yeah, I've got the sauce. I've got the secret sauce. Oh, that sucks. Yeah. No, um, I I find that um, you know, even if it isn't I understand like particularly, it. Particularly uh, uh harsh on Wallace, it's a very well. I at the end, it kind of makes him look like a jealous little bitch, right? And that was actually you'll have to watch the movie to see what I mean. So but it's, mo- it's mostly just like uh, Lipsky coming in as a neurotic fanboy to this very uh, intimidating intellectual, like kind of cold intellectual figure of, but who's also like 
projects this like every manish regular guy regular guyish thing and then they slowly warm up and like realize they're kind of intellectually on the same page and like ha- start having some bands and start having a good time and then like the third act is like wallace sees lipsky talking to a girl he likes and then becomes a total asshole to him and shuts him out and never talks to him again <laughs> and then and then after that uh lipsky like calls his editor and the editor is like you need to fi- find out whether he was a heroin addict <laughs> so yeah the last scene is like Yo, yo, dude, you ever do heroin? And and Wallace coming back, being like, being like, I, I was, I was in a very dark time in my life. End of description. Yeah, it's I, I don't know whether it's supposed to do this. I mean, that, I guess that is the question of the movie. It's like a, I'm not really sure what its intentions or its effects are, but it basically just made David Foster Wallace look like a like a very smart, talented guy who would just like to be left alone. Yes. <laughs> And then he then he kills himself, so he could be not that so he could be left alone, but certainly but, yes. helped. But that's the, the the beginning of the movie is him getting the call, being like David Foster Wallace is dead from apparent suicide, and then the rest is like, you know, the implication from his structure is going back and being like, hmm, is there anything in all these tapes I have about how much he he enjoys tennis and Doritos that that give indication about why he offed himself? God, I just the the thing I'll say about real life Lipsky doing because he yeah he published the book that was called um and of course of course you end up becoming although <laughs> although of course you end up becoming yourself <laughs> that's a, that was in the late 2000s I feel like that's a progenitor of all the not the the fiction titles now that's and a, of course and, we end up more together uh th- like what HBO original series are yeah, called exactly or or you know Brooklyn bars <laughs> I love to go to the bar called the, uh, uh, and of course we end up being yourselves. You want to meet me there tonight? <laughs> the outdoor patio is really good. But anyway, they t- I guess it's like a big investigative point about this is, uh, did David Foster Wallace, was he a drug addict or not? And the movie is kind of uh, ambiguous about it. And uh, I think he's ambiguous about it. Yeah. And I, it's honestly like, I'm a little bit like, who cares? I am interested to know whether he has smoked crack because there is a, a crack smoking scene that is so detailed that I'm like, you have to... You have to, do, you know, well, I guess we'll never know. Yeah. Either that or like he interviewed someone and they did a really. <laughs> he had a really good friend who call, who talked about crack. Yeah. It's crack. It's great. It gets you real high. Uh, <laughs> Boom, Mr. Show. Lipsky, all I'll say is I understand that he realized that he was sitting on a somewhat Treasure of a gold, job, yeah. a gold mine of those tapes with one of the, I think, greatest writers of the 20th and 21st uh, uh, century. Of the end of history. End of, of the end of history. Um, but there is no honor in what you did, sir. It <laughs> was also, not honorable. You told me this detail that is too delicious not to mention. David Lipsky, also notable for being Caroline Calloway's writing teacher. Yes. The, <laughs> revealed in the in the cut article that um, her ghostwriter, Natalie, wrote uh, that both of their, Natalie and Caroline Calloway, uh, had David Lipsky as their NYU creative nonfiction professor. Uh, and they both had a crush on him. Good, good legacy, dude. Yeah. <laughs> what have what have he released what on the world? <laughs> uh, yeah, this is on you, dude. Uh, yeah. Anyway, yeah. Uh, Crazy shit. A little capsule review of the uh, the end of the tour, Molly. You already you also went on something. I went else. on a podcast. I went on um, the Feeling Well podcast. Please look it up wherever podcasts are found. Uh, it was really nice. The guys from there had me on to to Josh and and Jape to a Josh bit. and Jape do yeah. some riffs do some riffs do some bands um and they and thank them for uh because they asked Molly to watch the movie and because Molly was watching I was like well I got to watch this thing too come on yeah uh so I thank, appreciate thank that you them did that. for uh 
for getting us to watch the movie. We'll try to watch some more. Uh, we, we can't front load it because there's only so much DFW uh, uh, media content, but I eventually we'll have to watch brief interviews with Hideous Men. I've never seen it. Uh, which is, you know, office slash CIA Jim's uh, directorial debut. Okay. Uh, I believe. I What is that? Is that a short work of fiction? Mm. Adapted from? Brief interviews with Hideous Men. Was yeah, that was a short story, but also the name of the collection. I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we'll have to look into that because, and that'll be a good excuse to also talk about Office Jim, who is a very interesting figure mm. in uh, modern Hollywood. Mm. Suddenly, uh, one of the most successful guys in Hollywood, and yeah. was not so when he developed directed this quirky DFW project as an indie as his first feature. Uh. Anyway, anyway, wow, we did a, did almost forty five minutes here. Wow, a long a, takes a long time to kill a a, um, a Quebecois, Quebecois terrorist. terrorist operative. Uh, anything else that we need to talk about? I think that's it. We'll have a new int- introducing um, today. Well, this but is coming be two out two days ago. By the time you hear this, time isn't real. Um, we're, li- we're just living in the year of the depend adult undergarment. Uh, the infinite cast pod at gmail.com. I haven't checked to see if anybody emailed from the last time yet, but I'll keep mentioning it. And eventually we'll start checking that email. Yeah. Um, would it, would year of the dependent adult undergarment been a good name for this pod? Yeah. A bit long. It's a little, maybe a little twee. I think the infinite cast is just so clean, you know? No, it's, it's, it's good. And it get, it got you that wonderful logo that you designed. Yeah. In thank you. Please appreciate my Photoshopping on the, on the, uh, typeface of the, the pod. You did a good job. Um, now I'm just drawing this out. Should we sign off? Yeah. Say goodbye, Molly. Goodbye, Molly. Goodbye, Chris.